Okay. So let's start our next episode. No, that's the best start for the episode. Hello. My name is Elmira, I am from Kazakhstan, and I study in social anthropology program at Central European University. And I'm Grace, I'm from the US, and I'm in the Nationals and Studies program. In this podcast, we're putting a spotlight on student research that explores historical, cultural, and sociopolitical issues related to Central Asia. We will also play with our positionalities as insider and outsider, both culturally and academically. With these different perspectives, we'll try to untangle common assumptions or cliches about the region. Every episode features the work of a student guest, and together we'll explore the questions that drive their research forward. All right, Farouk, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for those of you listening, Farouk was our TA for this course that Elmira and I took on uh, history in Central Asia. Can you please introduce yourself? Yes. Well, I'm finishing my third year in PhD program in comparative history uh, here at CU, or there, for you it's there, it's you. I'm still based, based in Budapest, but I come from Tajikistan, uh, from Dushanbe, Tajikistan. But I was born and uh, grew up in a rural community, uh, which I will descri- describe a little later. But yes, very low key, uh, peasant background, Tajik fellow, who made it to Western academia somehow. That's the, that's the coolest part about CEO, how people like find themselves here and now in Vienna, but yeah. Yeah, something I, I haven't talked about yet on the podcast is that this is exactly what kind of brought me to CEU is just hearing about it in Kazakhstan. And it was, there aren't really many universities that you hear about there. Everyone only talks about like Harvard, everybody knows Harvard or maybe, you know, Stanford, but. It was, it was cool to hear that, oh, this is a, a place that's kind of uh, financially accessible for a lot of my friends and that uh, people are going to, to do research that is also interesting to me. Um, yeah, but one thing you said for um, interests me. So you said you are from Dushanbe, but then you grew up in this village. So why do you consider, your, like, why do you say you're from Dushanbe then? Like, is it more home for you or how does that work? Uh, for people like me, it's very hard to put a finger on a world map and say, this is my home. So I was born in Sharura in the Gisar, in Gisar district, in Gisar Valley. Yes, it's the very center of Tajikistan, in a way. Uh, and I lived there up until I was 20, 19, 20 years old. And then I started the university in Dushanbe and I had to relocate to Dushanbe. That is like a 15, 14 kilometers apart but quite a different world. So, uh, and I lived there up until I was 30. So another 10 years. And then for the rest of my life, I've been living here and there in Central Asia, in the US, now it's Europe. So it's very, it's not a very long life, but it's very diverse and with multiple homes. And um, geographically speaking, it's very hard to say where the home is, but also intellectually. Because you're not only what you where you live, you're also what you read. And uh, it's this web, being a part of Western academia, but also coming from the region. Uh, it's combining an identity of a scholar, but also uh, an object of study in one personality. So it's also a com- complicates uh, your self-understanding in a way. 
So it is a long answer to the question of who I am and where I come from and how difficult it is to answer the question. Tell me a little about yourself. So it will never be a little. Yeah. <laughs> it will never be myself. Ah. But, but that is that is a gr- good start because what we are focusing in our podcast is like we covered um, almost all uh, in this introduction, almost all our topics, let's say, like, right, right, how we are identifying, how we're defining Central Asia as a region, how we are looking in this research of Central Asia from inside out, and that is our podcast um, kind of name and the focus. And uh, the third thing, how our identities are driving our research. So uh, we can start probably from the first question, right? Uh, we can talk a little bit of what would you call Central Asia? What would be your definition of Central Asia? Well, I can only share with you my, the evolution of my view on Central Asia. And it's a very conventional and it reflects in many ways what people are used to thinking about the region. So we, we think about it as a de facto region, as as a region that has its own sense of integrity and commonness, which resulted um, not as much from a natural predisposition or natural unity within the region, because it's it's very diverse and complex geographically, culturally, nationally, that I would never call it a region. Nevertheless, this historical thinking that it is a region, starting from the the Russian imperial administration and scholarship, finally materialized in this weird yet sensible and material sense of commonness and togetherness among Central Asians even today. So many of us are Russophone, many of us are Muslim, uh, and many of us are also a part of the uh, former Soviet Union, yes? And many many of us do take it seriously, the the last letters of the country names, the stans, and uh, when you find yourself somewhere in the US, in Europe or in Russia, you say I'm from Tajikistan and you meet someone from Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan, they immediately say, yeah, oh, it would say something about post-Soviet or Central Asian. Uh, today, they more and more uh, identify also as um, Muslim as a common identity. But I think to me, this uh, artificiality and arbitrariness with uh, shaping the region uh, in scholarship uh, has resulted in some kind of sensible and material and real uh, manifestations on the everyday life and self self identification patterns. That's one thing. Also, uh, Central Asia has been shaped as a region by area studies. So, if you have a discipline such as area studies that really breaks the world up into territories. Eastern Europe, Central Europe, South America, Southeast Asia, now Central Asia. So you have a discipline, you, you, you'd better come up with a region for it, right? So it's also a product of uh, uh, specialists' efforts. You know, people studying conflict and violence, religion, geopolitics, nation building, nationalism, and also post-socialist transition would unproblematically call Central Asia a region. Yeah, uh, this is how I used to approach Central Asia in agreement with the scholarship expertise of many people. Uh, and you probably know the names and the books ty- book titles. I am closer now to thinking of Central Asia as a, as a network of micro regions. So I'm 
the, the view has been informed by the post-colonial studies is also critical theory and how, you know, in general, being critical about conventions, uh, intellectual trends. Um, so it proved helpful in studying Central Asia and uh, it allowed many people to come up with original research projects. In my own case, I view Central Asia, this magnitude of micro-regions. My micro-region is the Hisar Valley. You know, you can break up Tajikistan itself into several very autonomous, very um, well-organized regions, such as the South, the North, the East. And you, you take any republic within this Central Asia, you, you will be able to also break it up into its own region, South and North, and Kyrgyzstan, and also, I don't know, Kazakhstan, uh, so it's very helpful heuristic device also to use Central Asia in micro regional terms. So I hope it answers in any way. Yeah. Let's switch to your research then. Let's jump into yeah, see actual... exactly how you've done this yeah. in your own work. All right. So I I research everyday life transformations in a in a place that you would call today Pasola Garatsko Tipa. Uh, it's a kind of a village town or a rural town or a rural town, urban village. I don't know. It's a very particular um, kind of place for Soviet Union and uh, often overlooked is just emerging as a, as a, again, a field of study, the Pasova-Garatskova Tipa, because the majority of soil population lived in them. Yet we either study villages or cities as the only possible ways to live yeah but i'm looking in the middle ground between the two and i'm interested in seeing how the everyday life changed uh, throughout the 20th century in this one suppose and what the global phenomena such as the cold war the global developments in general shape the intra and intercommunal relations within the system within the society yeah? Uh, also, whenever possible, I look at the transformations of the landscape and um, the, the patterns of socialization in everyday life. What kind of jobs people did, how they worked, how they rested, and how they died in many ways is something I look at. Uh, look at. It's, uh, it's a counter narrative from the archival uh, history of Central Asia. You can really now write a dissertation on Central Asia without ever being in the region these days using some archival sources. A friend of mine is, is because of the pandemic, this is what people do today. They write Central Asia history without ever visiting the region. Um, but I'm giving a non-archival history of that place and see what happens. I'm not yet sure that I... <laughs> Uh, that I'm done in any way. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, how has your own kind of life, or uh, how is it connected with uh, your own personal identity? Because I think that's something that makes your research really unique to me, anyway. Like how you have this such a personal connection with it. Well, if you know anything about me, you would know that I was interested in the national question in Central Asia. So I wrote published a paper on the national museums. National representations was something that I was interested in. But somehow I ended up in researching transnationalism in the Soviet Union and in Central Asia and how nationhood was experienced on the ground. And uh, 
everyday life history really allowed me to counter that narrative of nationhood or national belonging uh, towards national ambiguity or inability to place yourself within a nation. But it was also a self-rediscovery of my, myself as a product of historical processes. Yeah, so how, how, how come I speak three languages as native? How come I grew up in an apartment building in, in a Sovkhoz? Yeah. Uh, how come a Russian woman met a Badakhshani man and then an Uzbek woman met a Tajik man and then their children met each other and then just me, myself, me and uh, my siblings. So in many ways, I was just, I rediscovered my place of birth and um, childhood. So the, the buildings, the social and cultural infrastructure, the hospital, the photo albums of all people living in that place. And then I realized that uh, this is not a national history. This is indeed a global history. It's a, it's a, it's a global episode in just one location. And this is how I started the project of wrote it in, th- in four days and somehow it was accepted. It's, a, it's, it's very new, not only for me, but for many people. So it's a permanent and constant struggle and negotiation with my supervisor. And we're trying to place my dissertation constantly. Every time there's a chapter, we're trying to place it somehow within the academia, within the intellectual field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's just very unfitting as of yet. Um, we need to have this conversation in a couple of years. Yeah. No, that is the mo- the biggest struggle, I think, uh, what I uh, encountered in my uh, research because I was... Well, maybe I'm writing about something that has no <laughs> framework or like has yeah. no was not, and that is kind of exciting because you are feeling like you are doing something new, and a new field of studies also emerging together with you. Another thing was what I was interested in that you took that is this personal approach is very uh, intriguing and very interesting and very. Um, the 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 question of self discovery was uh, exciting for me. Uh, how was it to? Because I remember you also interviewed your uh, family members, like extended family members, and basically they became your uh, like objects of study or subjects of study. How was that interaction? And how do you think everything regarding ethics, right? How we do research, how we can address uh, those kind of questions, because usually it's anonymous, like interviews, and and they are becoming, I think, uh, heroes of your research, because I remember your presentation and it was really, yeah, I saw, I saw a character, I saw a person there. Yeah, well, I should have put it. One problem with intellectual job, I guess, or doing history in general is that you become a very lousy family member. You just lose connection to your family and you just disappear. And that's what happened to me. I just disappeared for 15 years. I uh, was outside of Tajikistan. I was not connected to my family uh, who still lives in the rural area, uh, very disconnected from the rest of the outer world. Uh, And I was interested in things like gender, um, uh, global politics, Marxism, you know, uh, colonial history, activism, political activism, uh, psychoanalysis, and anything but my own family. So <laughs> just to keep yourself busy. Uh, so uh, in, I, I have effectively lost connection to my family. And in many ways, it was not 
that uh, I immediately realized, oh, I could just use my family as respondents and write a dissertation okay. about that. Not at all. Just uh, I came back to the village um, after tr his training in history. And um, as usual, we just go, you want to catch up on your family. You would go to the um, photo albums. And I would just look through the photographs, old photographs of my grandmother and ask my mother about her history. And then it turned out that she was a, like a, a Russian noble from a Russian noble family, but somehow escaped the volatile climate of the revolutionary Russia and uh, ended up in Central Asia and in the Caucasus. And um, then many similar histories, personal stories of people who uh, ended up in Central Asia gave me um, a sense that Central Asia was this place where people escaped. So the, the personal creation of new lives coincided with the broader Soviet aspirations towards the new life. You know, Soviet Union was all about the future ideologically and invested great resources into creation of the new life. So you can see how both personal desires to reinvent a life and the Soviet and purpose, I guess, to uh, create a radically new society coincided. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested to see how they read, how individuals and the Soviets all go. It's very hard to speak of Soviets outside of individuals. They were also individuals, right? But they were, uh, they had job, a job to do and their job was to you know, institute some kind of change and individuals with their own agendas. So how they negotiated that, how they uh, offered and took. Yeah? To mm -hmm. me, it was a history of giving and taking and um, uh, this is how it started. And then I also realized that it has, that central agents were globally connected uh, through science or, or research, military service, and um, through their religion. So I noticed that some um, that the, the 1950s was the, the the age of science. Yes, Soviet Union invested in sciences. There was a uh, proliferation of research institutes uh, from a few, uh, a handful, to 400, roughly. And uh, when you read scholars like Strogatsky, they have this funny piece on the Nii Chavo. So everything. Any every aspect of your life has some kind of uh, research institute yeah. that does research on pretty much everything that you can point around yourself. Yes, in your in your cultural, spiritual, and uh, material life. And then in the seventies, it was a wage an age of war, and I saw evidence that a lot of Central Asians served in the army, uh, in Africa, in Afghanistan, in Europe. So um, there was a sense of direction from scientific cooperation towards military confrontation. And then it's just religion is something that takes you to other worlds. Even if you're sitting in your little mosque or if you have a little icon in your apartment building, somehow you're connected to a global community. Mm -hmm. You're reading books that come from far away and um, no, it's just interesting how uh, the post-Soviet society turned out to be uh, globally aware and globally connected uh, immediately after the, the end of the Soviet Union. When you see, we were of course somehow unique and interesting and interesting to the outer world, but 
uh, we're also very European in a sense. Yes, so we underwent this uh, socialist modernity, which did not make us in any way different or incompatible with uh, the US or Europe. Yes, you go to any of these parts of the world, you find um, Central Asians and uh, uh, other post-socialist people living comfortable lives. And their children are even uh, well integrated into these Western societies. So a part of my effort is to explain how it all happened. Mm -hmm. So you would say that uh, if your uh, uh, family would uh, meet, uh, would uh, visit you today in Budapest, they would be not really yeah, well integrated and that not very no, I think they would be excited about being here because they would go to museums and they would see this very similar museum objects that they would yeah. see in any kind of museum in Central Asia. They would go to a theater, they would listen to operas and ballets that uh, they are very popular here. Um, I was so. constantly reminded of Kazakhstan and Budapest. It was mm -hmm. funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was but Kazakhstan, yeah. Yeah, well, Budapest is kind of post-socialist world. It's Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly, but it's still this kind of weird Europe for yeah. socialist Europe. But you go to Italy, go to France. Yeah. My mom has dreamt her whole life to be in Italy, France, to see Louvre, to see um, Italian opera, mm -hmm. and uh, to experience this kind of culture that she has already experienced in Central Asia. There's this yeah. kind of Western fetish, I guess, yeah. uh, that made us who we are. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how you are inscribing the, with this like last, uh, let's say, um, conclusion that you're inscribing Central Asia in the European world, and I see it as this uh, victor of uh, Europeanization or like Eurocentric approach to Central Asia, and I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> weird, but fine. <laughs> so yeah, that is this interesting paradox, right? Because you're not, uh, you're not. Uh, uh, comparing it with uh, like India or I don't know Pakistan or like other uh, our southern neighbors like Pakistan, right? So we are this weird like people or region between uh, mental, uh, no, the European mentality, whatever you call it, or culture, but uh, in the southern region. But I think that would be like super huge discussion. Maybe we yeah. should cut here. <laughs> Um, I was wondering what your family thinks of your research. So, to most of the, to most of my respondents, my research is weird and twisted. So, Central Asians, as I mentioned previously, are very historically minded people. So, you study history at school. Uh, you have history books on everything uh, around you. There's history of architecture, history of agriculture, there's history of sciences, there's history of here and that and that. And there's a local history of everything. Yeah. Every little place you go to Central Asia has its own little museum, has a piece of micro history, has some kind of local historic history uh, enthusiast, or just a person who remembers everything and is a local historian de facto. So uh, at first you think, oh, this is a goldmine for history research. You go there and they tell you everything. But uh, the trick there was that historically minded people have a limited number of narratives. In my case, it was just three narratives. You have this 100-year-long history, pretty much from 1920s to 2020s, yeah, 
all of this history in only three narratives. And the three narratives that I identified, which kind of my family and other respondents have in mind is this uh, colonization, which is very different from what here we study in the West as a colonial history. No, colonization in the Soviet mindset was Oswayenia of the wild. Mm -hmm. They tell this history as that we came, mostly Europeans, but also European trained Central Asians, and we conquered the territory. We we built infrastructure, roads, culture, filled it with the civilization, yes? Soviet people had this very weird attitude towards wild nature. They, they were like ancient Greeks. They hated it, despised it in many ways. To them, it was alien and hostile. At building a soap horse, a tractor, this is what you appreciate. So this was the first narrative. The second narrative was kind of national. People would tell me, look, oh, look at this person. She's pure German. Look at that person. She's pure Russian. And look at this person. This is a mixed person of pure German and pure Kyrgyz. So, <laughs> so people were sharing their ethnic composition of the village in ethnic terms, in terms of pure and not so pure, but even not so pure was also somehow pure and unique and interesting. So ethnicity and nationality was something that they wanted me to know, to be aware of and put into the history. And the third is the independence narrative, that there's now a sense of direction, there's a sense of ownership over the future, and some other people, uh, members of my larger family uh, would now advocate for this new beginning so that finally we have this central asian independence and we're finally moving in some kind of direction as a nation uh, yeah. so these are the only three narratives but i'm interested in the, the the gray zones in between how people lived worked and died i'm looking for history beyond these narratives into how they experience their surrounding the apartment buildings the furniture how their celebrations went on, how the language they spoke, the sports they played, these kind of things. And when they ask, why are you interested in that? It's all within these narratives, right? So you have a stadium, so it's the, the socialist development history. You have the intermarriage, it's the ethnic history. But um, um, when I say that I'm interested in rumors and crimes that people committed, they freak out. They say, well, why would you want to play to, there were no criminals here and people made mistakes. It was at no, it was a, mistake, a genuine mistake. It was not a crime. So mm -hmm. we don't want you to take, um, to mention the, this kind of, uh, deviant behavior. The behavior that is deviant for both socialist morale and also ethnic morale. But to me, exceptions and crime and deviant lifestyles such as hippieism or alcoholism, drug addiction, sex, uh, are interesting because this is the, ma the major part of your life, everyday life, even today. Yes. So, and uh, I discovered that um, that everyday life in rural Central Asia was quite hip. It's something that you cannot afford in California, in San Francisco, where I also live. Yes. The people had to work a lot in order to have a little bit of fun. Sharura, you had mostly fun, and occasionally you work <laughs> for your sofas, yeah. Um, so, and uh, because some of my family members were involved in this kind of deviant, but yeah, very interesting, exceptional lifestyle, um, make them very dramatic, but um, 
it is something that they wouldn't appreciate finding on the pages. Mm-hmm. In any case, they're expecting a copy of the dissertation. Mm-hmm. If it ever becomes a book, they're expecting the copy in Russian and Tajik, yes? Um, because they're very historically minded. They wanted to make sure that they are present in this history with their narratives. But I think the major issue will be um, for me to balance their desire to be present in history, but also to produce a, an academic work that also explains uh, intellectual problems that we face today as historians. It is far from being complete, um, so they will have to wait. Well, we should probably um, start to wrap it up. I actually can wrap up with uh, my observation how how this story I'm looking at this as a story, but also as a research, right? How it starts with this very, um, let's say, global framework as a uh, Cold War, right? What we started our conversation with and how it ends with uh, this, I don't know, very interesting uh, everyday interactions, very personal, also quite uh, globalized, like quite international activities and how we ending up with this fun part, right? That is that is what I enjoyed in your research, that it starts as very like big and very, I don't know, complicated, complex type of um, uh, questioning uh, the reality. And then you give this very beautiful little or not little uh, stories and vignettes and uh, details how uh, people were having fun, how people were like, yeah, going for the dances and like uh, drinking particular drinks and like wearing particular clothes. And I think that is the, um, yeah, that is the beauty of the research itself, how it is complex, how it is layered, layered and how it is touching upon so many different details. So I can say only good luck. I'm really looking forward to read it too as your relatives. In Tajik and in Russian, please. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Um, maybe you can share some, I don't know, final thoughts that you um, are thinking further or um, some other beautiful findings that you got. Oh, um, yes. Well, I, I can only respond to what you said about the the beauty of our everyday life, I think in many ways, it might be also uh, a little too optimistic of me to say that this was the everyday life. I would never be able to make a bold statement like that because nobody knows what the everyday life was like, even people who lived that everyday life, because everyday life is something that escapes uh, the attention. And I was used to writing on re- and reading history is a permanent struggle. And this is the Central Asian national histories. You struggle, you fight against the Mongols, you fight against the Russians, you fight against the Bolsheviks. Then with the Bolsheviks, you fight against the Germans. Then you fight against the capitalists. Then with the capitalists, you fight against the communists. You're constantly fighting and fighting. But to me, the beauty of uh, any society is the society itself. And then instead of opposing yourself towards other societies, I think for the most part as humans, we are trying to actually preserve a society we belong to by peaceful means, by drugs, alcohol, and music for the most part. And I think it is my personal agenda, which is very unconscious. And I think I just verbalized it right now in this <laughs> podcast. And you're having some unique moment in my intellectual evolution right now is that when I actually acknowledge my, my uh, values is this mediocre, peaceful, quiet, 
socialization. It might be the clue to a global peaceful coexistence, very utopian, very unsoviet, um, maybe very impossible in, in many instances, but because it's so difficult, it does not mean we shouldn't try.